Father in heaven, we really do need you. We need you to teach us. We need you to encourage us. We need you to open our, our minds. More than that, our hearts and our lives. That we might live with you every day. Growing in you. Seeing you at a, a deeper level. Always. As you reveal more and more of yourself to us. But Father, in that revelation, we also learn a lot about who we are. This morning, I'm asking you, teach us about you, but show us who we are in you. Inspire us, Lord. Stir our hearts. And I pray you'll do all of that through your word. So I'm asking that the Bible will speak this morning, that your spirit will drive it, and that our hearts will receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Strap on your boots this morning. We are going for a hike through Scripture. Our destination is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but we got a ways to go before we get there. So join me in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We're going to go right towards the end of his Gospel, the 20th chapter. It's not quite the end, but awful close. Go to the 20th chapter and join me in verse 30. John writes these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is an interesting one. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record at some level the nativity story, the birth of Jesus. John goes a lot farther back than the birth of Jesus when he starts his book. He goes back to the beginning of time. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the very first verse of the Gospel of John, John establishes who Jesus is. He is not only the Son of God, He is God. Deep doctrine. And that He was there from the very beginning. Deep doctrine. And then He launches into the record of some of Jesus' miracles, all with this intention, that we will believe. That we will believe. That whoever picks up his gospel will find a relationship with Jesus that will change their lives. That's the purpose of his book. That's the purpose that caused him to sit down and write the things that he did. But tucked away in the midst of all of it, even understanding that purpose, John shows us some things that could be classified as disturbing. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 32, or 37, I'm sorry. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. I want you to keep in mind what we just read, that there was a division among the people. And then turn over to John chapter 9 and join me in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Now let's go to chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. But when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not belong to the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Are you seeing a common thread in all three of those passages? Even though Jesus was established by John as the Son of God and as God, even though John established early on that Jesus was there from the beginning, and so these people that were receiving him now, Jewish people, should have been waiting for him, should have been looking for him and ready to accept him. Many of them didn't. There was division. There was division. Three times in the Gospel of John, one of the most practical books in all of the Bible, to find Jesus. Three times we learn that Jesus divides people. Some of you know that. You know that really personally. You came to Christ and it caused a division in your family. You came to Christ, caused division in your marriage. You came to Christ and a lot of your friends couldn't understand what you had done. And they left you. Jesus divides people. He really does. And it's not a secret to him. Shouldn't be to us. Because it's not a secret to him, the Lord knows that when you come to know him, it may be at great cost. But he knows that the benefits are totally worth it. Maybe, just maybe, that's why we read this in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 14 starting in verse 25. Dr. Luke records this, but a lot of what we're about to read are Jesus' words. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now when we read that passage, there is a very rapid disconnect when we stumble across the word hate. Here it is again. If any of you comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When we stumble across that word hate, we just stop reading because it doesn't seem to measure up to everything that we have heard from Jesus and about Jesus. The word hate doesn't match the message of love. So we disconnect we walk away from the passage. And really, if I could be just transparent with you, I'd tell you that I wish we didn't translate that word hate. It is a tough translation. 
A more accurate translation is this. Love less. If we could utilize those words which are accurate for that word in the original language, we wouldn't disconnect from this passage, but rather we would understand exactly what Jesus is telling us. We have to love everything else in our life less than Him in order to really be His disciple. He needs to be first in our life. And if He is, everything else will fall into place underneath Him. And when everything falls into place underneath Jesus, He shapes everything about us. He shapes the entire rest of our life. But that requires us to love everything else less. Because there will be division. There will be division. People will not understand your relationship with Him. People will not understand, even people very close to you, why you would follow Him. Some will leave you. Some will want you to leave Him. That division becomes big and bold. So we have to love everything and everyone else less than we love Him. Right after that teaching, Jesus would make this statement, verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I love the way Jesus wraps that together. When he goes through this entire teaching on loving less everyone and everything else in our life, he says, you hold on to your salt. Don't you lose your saltiness because people are going to attack your faith. People that you would least expect to will attack your faith. People that love you the most or purport to love you the most will attack your faith. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your saltiness. You hold on to it because it's difficult to get it back. If you lose it, it is hard to get it back. So you remain salty in your relationship with Christ, even when it causes division. I want to encourage you to do something kind of bold in your Bible. Between verses 33 and 34, would you write 1 Thessalonians 5? 1 Thessalonians 5. Because it would appear that in 1 Thessalonians 5, Jesus picks up where Jesus leaves off. He grabs hold of this exact teaching and expounds on it. And he does it in a way that prepares us for Jesus' return so that we never lose our saltiness. Even though the Apostle Paul doesn't say it, he teaches us how to remain salty in Christ. Now join me there, and I'll show you what I mean. Told you we had to go on a hike in order to get here. This is our destination. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, 
But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Now, let's speed through a couple of things real fast so that we can get to the meat of this, but it's necessary to see these. Listen to how Paul starts out. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, there are only three times that that expression is used in the Bible. This is one of them. This is one of three. Daniel uses the same term, times and seasons. Here it is up on the screen for you. Times and seasons. And the book of Acts uses it as well. And then Paul would use it right here. In each of these uses, it would appear that times and seasons applies to the nation of Israel. If you keep your finger there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, join me in Acts chapter 1 and you'll see it. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Only going to read two verses, don't get too discouraged. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Times and seasons, the three times that it shows up in Scripture, appears to apply to the nation of Israel. So in this particular application, Paul has just told us about the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church, and then he talks about times and seasons, implying that God has a great plan for the nation of Israel in biblical prophecy. He will establish, or in this case reestablish, his kingdom through the nation of Israel, times and seasons. So now in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is talking about the times and the seasons, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, his chosen people. So keep that in mind. If you need to circle that in your Bible and draw a line out into the margin, write nation of Israel there so that you remember the application of that expression. Times and seasons will change how you see this. But then back in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul uses another term that's just really kind of intriguing. So I'm going to pick up again in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That word day is incredibly intriguing in the Bible. Here it is. It's up on the screen for you again. Don't want you to miss it. The word day because it can be used in two different ways. The word day can mean a specific 24-hour period, or it can be used to describe a longer period of time. I'll show it to you in two back-to-back -back verses in the book of Genesis. So let's go there together. This is Genesis chapter 2. Verse 3, Genesis 2, verse 3, 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. There it's used to describe a 24-hour period, one day. Now look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. One chapter prior to this, we read about the seven days of creation, showing us that the word day, here it is up on the screen again, the word day can either mean a one 24-hour period of time or a longer season or period of time. When it is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it is used to talk about a longer season of time. It is used to describe the day of the Lord or a judgment that is coming. When Paul talks about that the way he does, he is laying out for us really a, an interesting period of time, an interesting moment in the timeline of all humanity. And it is one that's talked about in the New Testament quite extensively, but it's also talked about in the Old Testament. Daniel talks about the day of the Lord. Joel talks about the day of the Lord. Zephaniah talks about the day of the Lord. It shows up all the time in the Old Testament, always in reference to this longer period of time. But I really like the way Amos talks about it, because I think Amos and Paul might have been friends. Paul was certainly a student of the Old Testament, so when he writes the way he does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, well, he's, he's writing with the knowledge of what Amos was talking about. This is in Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Well, that's the exact same thing that Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's the day of the Lord. And it is a period or a season of time that in prophetic teaching we refer to as the tribulation. It's seven years long. It begins with, as I read the Bible, the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church. And then that ushers in a seven-year period called the tribulation that can be described really in no other terms than darkness. The way Amos just captured it is pretty accurate. It's like you were headed out to meet a lion and a bear intercepted you. You lean your hand against the wall and a scorpion bites you. There is one thing after the next that just keeps hammering away as God brings judgment on the entire world. Those that are left, the church, Christians, believers, have been caught up to be with the Lord in the air and will come back with Him at His second coming just seven years later. But before that, before that, there's this seven-year tribulation period. It's dark. It is dark. That's the day of the Lord. 
Now in the process of it, yes, God is judging everyone that remains, but he is also preparing the nation of Israel times and seasons to be who he has always wanted them to be. He's bringing them back to himself. So for that seven-year period of time, God's shining a light on the Jewish people that hasn't shined in this particular point in time for nearly 2,000 years. God's going to shine the light on them again. But we learn this as we go through Scripture. Hundreds of millions of people that are left behind will become Christians. Many of them so strong in their faith that in this seven-year period of dark times will lose their lives for the Lord. But make no mistake about it. This seven-year period, the day of the Lord that Paul's talking about, it's about judgment. And it is not without precedence. Not at all. In fact, the Bible would tell us that there have been a couple other times that will mirror it. Jesus tells us that there are a couple other times that mirror this seven-year period. This is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, and I'm going to pick up in verse 36. If you want to turn there, please do. If not, just listen close. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and when they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not left his house or let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Then in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, we read this, starting in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So we have the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are used as imagery to help us understand what the day of the Lord will be like. Catastrophic disaster catastrophic disaster, one after the other. The judgments will be opened by God, seven of them in a seven-year period. The seals will be broken, and the judgments of God will come down. If you need proof, then just study the flood. By the way, the flood, the biblical flood, is the only thing that describes things that scientifically we discover around the world. Like, why are there shark skeletons in the state of California? Why are there, or not California, Colorado. Why are there shark, full shark skeletons in the mountains? 
Without a worldwide flood, there is no explanation. Want to study the worldwide flood and really find some basis for it? Then start with one question, and it'll take you all kinds of different places. What happened to the dinosaurs? We know the dinosaurs were real. There's no question about that. We have found their skeletons. What happened to them? The catastrophic worldwide flood of Genesis chapter 6 explains it. They died in the flood. Why would they die in the flood? Because God was about to change the climate of the entire world and could not sustain the life of dinosaurs. It's pretty simple. Now, in the absence of the simplicity of the biblical answer, we have people that have to try to explain it with nothing but theory. Theories come out like this. Well, a meteor hit the earth, and that's what killed the dinosaurs. That's theory. It takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe the Bible. That's, that's a crazy thing to me. It takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe the Bible. But once you do believe the Bible, here's what you will come to understand. In that flood, and it isn't just a story that is to be told in Sunday school, it is historically accurate. All but eight people were destroyed. And the entire world paid the price for it. Climates changed. Geography changed. Everything changed in a catastrophic flood. Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus points that out as an illustration of what the day of the Lord will be like. Do you know that scientists have found the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? They're just south of the Dead Sea. There's no question that those are the actual places that were destroyed by fire and brimstone. Interestingly enough, Outside of the biblical record of it, as scientists try to explain what happened in that geography, do you know what they came up with? A meteor must have hit that area. In 1973, they discovered the cities. They sit right on the edge of the Dead Sea. Some people say that they actually are underneath the Dead Sea as well, that they spread to that area. Nothing grows there because God rained down fire and brimstone on them. So nothing grows there. They have pockmarks in the building from burning hailstones that came down. But if we don't believe the biblical record of it, we have to come up with a theory. And the only theory that we seem to be able to grab hold of is at some point, I hope science gets more creative than this, a meteor hit it. A meteor hit it. If we can't explain it, a meteor hit it. Don't have the meteor. Isn't that interesting? But we have the sight. We have the sight. And God says, that's what it's going to be like in the coming day of the Lord. So if you want to find out more about it, just ask practical questions about those two things that the Bible uses to illustrate this season. Well, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is talking about the day of the Lord, and I love how he does it. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now this is kind of cool. I was studying this past week, saw this at a deeper level than I ever have before. A guy named J. Vernon McGee, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, studying some of his old writing helped me see this. When Paul's saying this, he's telling a group of people, believers, Christians, you don't have to worry about it because nobody plans to be robbed. Nobody makes preparations for the thief to come so that when the thief comes, you can say, hey, grandma's jewelry and all of her silver's down in the basement. You go down and get it. 
He's telling them, you have no need to worry about this because you don't live in the darkness. So the thief coming at night doesn't matter to you. Live in a way that you know it doesn't matter to you. That's what Paul's really teaching. He's saying there's some people that are going to be surprised when this happens. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. And what he's teaching when he says don't be one of them, Phil's paraphrase of that is don't be here because Jesus is coming back for his church. You make sure when he does that you meet him in the air. And then as the judgments of God start to unravel in front of everyone, as the world is changed yet again through catastrophic disaster, it doesn't have any bearing on you. But know this, there's a difference between those that live in the light and those that live in the darkness. And that is a lot of what he is pointing out as he goes through this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. There's division. There's division. And when you understand that division, know that it can actually happen even within your closest relationships. Don't let them pull you back. Don't. Don't. You make sure that you hold on to your saltiness. Because if you lose it for whatever reason and then you make a decision to come back, it's hard. It's hard. Because if somebody that is divided from you because of Christ causes you to walk away from Christ and then you decide to come back to Christ, do you think that the hold that they have on you is going to be less? No. So hold on to your saltiness. Even in the face of division. Even when they can't understand refuse to understand you hold on to it you live in the day because you don't want to be in the night you don't want to be in the night you want to be assured of your salvation in verse 8 Paul actually tells us how to live in light of all of this knowing that the judgment of the day of the Lord when it comes it's going to be as catastrophic as it was with Noah in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and you don't want to be here and you don't have to worry about it but if you want to be assured of that here's how to live I love this I love this this is his how to in verse 8 but since we belong to the day let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This is the third time in this book that the Apostle Paul has brought out faith, hope, and love. In this particular case, he uses them as a how-to. I love how-tos. You like how-tos? I like how-tos. Today, I'm a huge fan of YouTube. I am a YouTube mechanic. I am a YouTube problem solver. I am a YouTube all kinds of different things. Because all you have to do is type in how to and you get an answer. And you've got a guy showing you or a lady showing you right there on the video how to, whatever it is that you have to do. Anybody else with me? Just be honest. You can do it. Oh, thank you. We are of the YouTube generation. I like it. How-tos are a wonderful thing. I typed in how-tos this last week on my computer. I didn't realize that there's an entire website dedicated to how-tos. It's called WikiHow, like Wikipedia. The title of this is just WikiHow. And on the WikiHow website, all they do is give you a whole bunch of how-to categories. On the very first page, and I don't even know how far it goes, I skipped through five, six, seven pages, and it just kept on going. I don't know how many pages there are. On the first page, they had about 15 things listed. Here's 10 of them. 
how to feel more attractive, how to create family unity, how to compost in an apartment, (laughs) how to pack a hiking backpack, how to get teenagers to do chores. (laughs) Wonder who that expert is. How to choose comfortable walking shoes, how to defrost salmon, how to use a napkin with proper table etiquette, because we're all curious about that. How to open a stuck window, and, and this, I can't imagine anyone wanting to look it up. How to cook frozen broccoli. Here, I'll help you out. Throw it away. <laughs> Just throw it away and don't even mess with it. That's, that's the how-to on frozen broccoli or fresh. Either way, just throw it away. Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul gives us his how-to. It could easily be titled this if Paul was writing for Wickahow, how to live in light of Jesus' return. You do it with faith, hope, and love. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul goes through a whole list of characteristics, and, but at the end of it he says these three remain. Time will come when everything else will disappear, but these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Well, here they are again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. They are the three greatest tools of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. You ever wondered how to use them? Well, here's how I break it down. Take a look up on the screen. Faith looks back to our life when we accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You use your faith to look back at who you were before Jesus and who you are in Jesus And it should always leave you in a place to say, I don't ever want to go back because I like who I am in Christ. I like what the Lord has done for me. I like what he is doing for me. I want to stay here. That's faith. Had a lady in my office this past week that just asked this question, how do you get faith? Well, you look back at your life before Christ and who you are in Christ and who you want to be in Christ and your faith grows right from there. It just grows. And once you have that in place, take a look at this next one. Love. Love's for the present. It's the relationship we should have with those around us. So faith looks back into the past. Love looks around us all the time. And it's all about the relationships that we should have, the way we approach other people. We love them in the name of the Lord. And then there's this last one. Hope. Hope's for the future. As we look forward to the day we are face-to-face with Jesus. Faith, hope, love. Or faith, love, hope. One looks back, one looks around, and one looks forward. By the way, if you're still open to 1 Thessalonians 5, let's just take this hope one real quick, and I want to set the record straight on something. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. One more time, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. That expression, hope of salvation, has become a big challenge for a lot of people. So much so that there's people that know they are in Christ, but they worry that they're not enough in Christ. There's a whole bunch of people that know that they have given their life to Jesus, but they always worry that they aren't doing enough that they haven't performed enough works, that they haven't done enough to win the favor of God. And the hope of salvation is what causes them to struggle because they have to ask themselves, am I just hoping of salvation or have I really achieved salvation? Folks, when we approach it that way, we are putting the burden of salvation on ourselves 
and we're taking it from Jesus and that is always a mistake because based on your own steam and your own starch, you can never earn salvation. Not ever. So the burden of salvation must rest on Jesus. And all we have to do is accept what he is offering us. Don't ever take the burden from him and place it on yourself because when you place it on yourself, you will always fall short. Every time. You will always fall short. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot buy your way to heaven. You cannot. The hope of salvation is not tied in that. So then what am I supposed to do with an expression like this in the Bible, the hope of salvation? How do I work my way through it? Well, really simple if you're willing to unpeel all the layers of the onion. Or peel, not un. Peel all the layers of the onion away from it and just unpack what it means, here's what you will discover. There are three tenses of salvation. Three tenses of salvation. It could be described like this. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. And when you boil them all down, this is it. I have, well, let's go back one more, Chelsea. Just back. I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. Here's the way to think of it. I have been saved from the punishment of sin. Jesus took care of that on the cross. I am being saved from the power of sin. The Holy Spirit's working that out in my life right now. And I will be saved from the presence of sin when God calls me home and I stand in the presence of the Father. I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. That's the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation is not, am I good enough? The hope of salvation is the completeness of it. Does that make sense? So don't stumble over that. Don't stumble over that. Live with faith, hope, and love so that you know that the day of the Lord holds no power over you and it will not come like a thief in the night and surprise you because you'll be out of here. But you get to present that message to those that don't believe. Know this, some will choose the darkness. You've chosen the light. Stay in the light. Don't lose your saltiness. No matter what, don't lose your saltiness. Even in the face of the division between those that choose the night and those that choose the day, don't lose your saltiness. Scientists have discovered that there are two types of people. There are morning people and there are night people. Morning people are those people that when the alarm goes off or even before it, their eyes just are open and they are ready to put their feet on the ground and start their day. How many morning people do we have with us? God bless you. And then there's people like me. I, I'm not a child of the morning. I've tried. We've been married over 30 years. I've been trying all 30 years to become a morning person. There's, this is our expression when I'm working my way through that. I'll tell Tina, well, that's it. I'm turning over a new leaf. And she says, oh, I'm going to become a morning person? Yep, I'm going to do it. I am, I'm dedicated to it. I have failed every time. This is how I approach the morning. Oftentimes awake before the alarm because I don't sleep very well, but I have one eye open. The other one, it's trying to sleep. It's, it's staying asleep. And then I'll close this one and the other one will open up and the alarm will go off and, and I'll be angry for a, a short period of time, nearly every morning. And then my feet will hit the ground and I'll, I'll just kind of drag myself out of it and I'll get myself moving and it takes a while. 
Not because I have to overcome huge amounts of pain. Some of you have to deal with that. I just don't like the morning. Is there anybody else with me? Cool. At 10 o'clock at night, I can sit down and have a wonderful conversation with you. At midnight, I'm happy to get in the truck and go for a drive. That's all good. But don't ask me to do it at 5 a.m. unless we are driving to the field to hunt. That is the only time that I am a morning person. That is it. Biblically, we ought to be people of the morning. People of the day. Because those that live in the darkness are not looking forward to Jesus. Those that live in the day, they're not worried about the thief that comes at night because they're children of the day. That's what Paul's teaching us. So live differently. Salty. Live salty because you're a child of the day and the Lord's coming back. If you don't know that to be true, we want to talk to you about that this morning because this seven-year period of time, my goodness, you do not want to be a part of it. It's cataclysmic. A whole lot of people will die apart from the Lord during that time. If you've been in our Sunday school classes, you know that to be true. So talk to somebody about the hope of salvation, wherever you're at in the process. If you want to know how to be saved from the punishment of sin, we'll talk to you about that. If you know that that's happened, but you're not being saved from the power of sin and you're struggling hard with that right now, and all of us will struggle with sin, but if it has a hold on you and it's trying to pull you back, talk to somebody about that. And if you're not sure that that you are going to be saved in the presence of the Lord, talk to somebody about that. Wherever you're at in salvation, make sure that hope is a part of it. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, thank you for the hope of salvation. It's a great thing. Thank you for all the the tenses of it, the levels of salvation. They they apply to every one of us. Nobody achieves a greater level. It's, It's just you, Lord. It's just you. So help us grow in you. To know you better. To love you more. And to never lose our saltiness. And then, Father, among one another, would you help us use those things to build each other up. We're asking that in Jesus' name. Amen.